Well, uh, good morning. Just, just, give, just give me a minute here. Um, ah, that sound. There's the uh, champagne popping uh, PVO. We've done it. We have. The what? 100th episode of The Professor in the Hack. I was worried, Hugh. We were stuck on 99 for a while. I was worried we were either going to emulate uh, Don Bradman's batting average or, or Prince Philip's rest his soul life expectancy. But we got there. 100 it is. I think Shane Warne got to 99 with the bat as well, if I recall. But uh, And was- do you remember on that, he got to 99 and he was caught, I believe, trying to tonk for six or something equally as ridiculous, classic Shane Warne. But they revealed a year or two later that on the side-on shot, the bowler actually overstepped the mark. It was a no ball, but it wasn't called. Oh, Shane Warne robbed. Exactly. And he was not happy, by the way. <laughs> I think we should dedicate the rest of the show to Shane Warne ways in which he's been robbed, discussed. <laughs> but perhaps we shouldn't because uh, the vaccine rollout continues. In fact, it's being sped up a little bit, which might be some merciful news, not just to the, uh, the, the people of Australia, but also to the government right now. So talk us through that. We're still in lockdown for Greater Sydney as we record this, and, uh, but we've got more vaccines coming. Yeah, we do. Uh, a deal to get, I think it's a million a week, Pfizer vaccine starting on uh, July 19, I think it is. So it helps explain why the Prime Minister was somewhat smug, if you want to be uncharitable, or confident, if you want to be more charitable, in his media conference at Kirribilli House uh, just yesterday. Uh, that is to say on Thursday. Uh, he knew that this was coming. He sounded a little bit like almost sort of the whole comical Ali thing from Iraq when he was sort of advocating that everything's fine and the vaccine rollout's going well, it's not botched, and he rejects accusations to the contrary and just watch it's going to ramp up and it's you know well and truly going to be on time or, or close enough to on time shortly. It sounded like he was basically denying the undeniable as far as problems go, but in fact I think what he was doing was projecting forward, knowing that this story was coming out, knowing that this deal would be announced today and that he would therefore be able to talk about it at National Cabinet, as he no doubt will, and therefore hoping, uh, other than when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, that the supply is there so that the nation can actually get to a scenario where, even if we're not all vaccinated, everyone has the opportunity to be vaccinated and not just with the AstraZeneca, which is problematic and, and causes even more vaccine hesitancy and, of course, has advice that it should be directed at the over 60s, ideally, but actually with Pfizer, uh, which is the you know the more modern, if you like, mRNA variety. It'll be interesting to see if it makes any immediate difference to the Greater Sydney lockdown, which is heading into its third week. There's epidemiologists saying it's going to have to go longer than that uh, because the nature of, you know, you chase down those who are known contacts, but there'll be people who haven't surfaced as yet who are carrying the disease. They say that might take another couple of weeks to resolve those questions. So we're in Sydney's worst stage of this pandemic really since the early days with the ruby princess it is without this time the benefits of job keeper and a whole bunch of other sort of supplements that came in from the federal government what do you think the economic damage is from this and 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 is it just people bleating or is it this time much more real no i think it is much more real and i think i think not having the same level of assistance uh, that we had nationally at the beginning of COVID when JobKeeper was announced is a real issue. I mean, the Prime Minister was at pains to try to make the point that some of the targeted assistance that's been provided and announced in the last 24 to 48 hours 
is the same as JobKeeper, but what he's referring to there is the tail end of JobKeeper when it was a fraction of what it was at the beginning, not uh, the the full the full fifteen hundred or so that it started at, but you know, more like a third of that or thereabouts. So, and it is targeted, and, and it it does have you know paperwork if you like uh, that that is associated with it for people. Uh, and as one of the journalists at the media conference made the point yesterday, you know that amount of money doesn't go that far in Sydney, and this lockdown does look like it's not just going to go into a third week, but could go longer and could even see further restrictions, in fact. Uh, and the cautious response from other states to New South Wales, not least of which Mark McGowan with his commentary about having a, a permanent closing of the borders, uh, or at least near to permanent, uh, that 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 is all adding up to it being a bit of an economic disaster, frankly, for New South Wales. And I think it's going to really hurt, uh, you know, as it always does, younger people in particular, um, you know, people on the tools in terms of their work approach and, and particularly casual workers who, of course, let's not forget, many of whom uh, struggled even at the height of the pandemic because of the way that some of the payments were tailored. I want to get back to that WA press conference and the notion of the hard border because there is a little glimpse there into a, a quite difficult future in what Mark McGowan said as he described it as a bleeding obvious. But let's get back to the business of business. Mm. Um, there is plainly desire by Gladys Berejiklian to try to keep businesses open, to not have them all shut up down, down on the streets. And so we had a press conference that involved Gladys Berejiklian, the chief health officer, saying that it is up to each individual citizen, essentially, to decide what is essential activities during this current lockdown. The description being, well, you might need to go out and uh, buy blankets and you might need to get cushions. You might need to say, who's to say that uh, getting new school shoes for the kids might not be a central business? So this came at the press conference within a few hours. The police turn up as they announce their blitz focused on southwestern Sydney, multicultural southwestern Sydney, a compliance blitz in which they said you'd have to have a reasonable excuse to go out and buying shoes isn't one of them. So there's this mixed messages. If, if you had listened intently to the Premier's press conference mm. and not heard anything else for the rest of the day and gone out the next day to buy the kids' school shoes, you could wind up with a fine with a police officer saying that's not a reasonable excuse and you've been warned. Uh, these sorts of messages are really problematic because it tips over into as fundamental an issue as the relationship between the, church, the state and the individual because yeah. the police are doing something which the premier <laughs> has kind of given them a pass, you, you know, a, a punishing something. The premier's given them a pass to do. That causes me some problems when you get that kind of mixed messaging. Oh, it's a huge problem. And the fact that were it to play out fully, it would be resolved, I would suspect, uh, that is neither here nor there in one sense. And what I mean by that is a police officer issuing a fine about something that is ambiguous, if not clear cut, and shouldn't even be ambiguous because of what the Premier has previously said in contra to what the police officer has done, in in a procedural sense, that can end up being a, a fine that is challenged and you go before the courts and the courts therefore overturn it. I would be very confident that is what would happen. But of course, you know this as well as anyone, that is not something that everyone would even look to do or think to do or know to do, uh, particularly in some communities that might not have English as a first language, for example. And so as a result, it becomes very punitive 
about rules that really shouldn't be enforced in the way that they are being. However, in fairness to the police, the police are looking to enforce laws or these rules, I should say, simply because they are looking to try to do the right thing and prevent the spread of the virus. So it's a, it's a real difficult situation when everything is as slippery as it currently is. And the reason it is like that, I would suggest, is because Gladys Berejiklian wanted to be known as the no lockdown premier and not emulating the Melbourne approach to both policing and to lockdowns more generally, the Victorian approach. But of course, she's now in a situation where with the Delta variant, with the fact that it has gotten as out of control as it has, that whether she likes it or not, she needs to embrace some of these more harsh measures, but still can't quite bring herself rhetorically to go the whole hog because she's meant to be the Liberal Premier who still has a, 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 a decent understanding and reasonableness when it comes to what is or isn't essential, thinking with an economic hat on to some extent. So the whole thing becomes messy. Uh, and I think Gladys has lost a lot of political paint over this, I think, don't you? Well, it's interesting, Ursula Hager from 10 put it to her, there's lingerie shops open. Uh, is it, you know, and the, the, the Premier sort of indicated we wanted to keep businesses open, uh, people should go there. That, that was from a couple of days ago. Uh, is it, can lingerie be an essential purchase? You know, the, this is the difficulty partly because what she wants is to keep some trickle of business going through business mm. because the collapse of business is a desperately sad thing. Against that comes this new challenge to the notion that we're all in this together in that the police blitz is focused specifically, intentionally, in a stated way against southwest Sydney, mm. a compliance blitz on the public health orders when no such blitzes were enacted when it started in Bondi or when the Northern Beaches lockdown took place. And, and they're now in a position where they're having to defend themselves against charges of racism. Yeah. And it, it's, I've, I've seen a lot of those accusations thrown around and whether it is as clear cut as racism versus some other more amorphous natured prejudicial conduct, something is going on, isn't it? Because it does appear to be a double standard. And I don't know, that it necessarily can be as simple as saying they're apples and oranges because both the northern beaches and the eastern suburbs of Sydney clusters were in sort of peninsula zones that didn't require the same blitz. There might be some truth to that, but it doesn't change the fact because Southwest Sydney is so much more easily accessible from all sides as well as um, people living in South West Sydney um, are allegedly uh, much more likely to be more mobile, uh, both with their work and with their general transport, than if you live in the peninsulas uh, of, you know, uh, the northern beaches or indeed the eastern suburbs of Sydney. But even if that's true, it just looks bad. So it's one of those things where it feels to me like there is some truth to the accusations of double standards and prejudice. But even if there isn't some truth to it, the optics of that is bad and a bad look for a politician in particular. Yes, I think it's more optics than reality. I don't think they sat together and thought, let's let's be super racist. How can we hammer the uh, multicultural and diverse communities of southwestern Sydney? But it but it is a difficult look. Uh, particularly but it can you... it can end there though, can't it, Hugh? I mean, it's definitely a bad look. But it can it can end in a version of racism if if the argument is that they've got larger families or 
more diverse families in in close knit households. Therefore, ipso facto, uh, we need to come down harder on them. That 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 isn't racism for racism's sake, but it is racial profiling to some extent. Interesting. Let's return to WA just for a moment because uh, Mark McGowan was responding to a comment from the New South Wales Health Minister, Brad Hazard, uh, saying that we might have to uh, learn to live with the virus. Uh, McGowan pops up at the news conference saying, well, if that's the case, it's a statement of the bleeding obvious that we might need long-term hard borders between Western Australia and New South Wales, because if you're living with the virus over there, it means that it is in the community and it means that you then bring it into Western Australia on flights and so on. And then you have to lock down Western Australia because he's dedicated to a zero transmission state. Something similar, one would presume, would be the attitude in uh, New Zealand, which has suspended the travel bubble uh, to New South Wales uh, at the moment, certainly to Greater Sydney uh, at the moment. And this gives us a slight window to see what the future might look like in that if you take Mark McGowan at his word, even though the aim is to end the lockdowns, lockdowns is the last resort to use the words of the prime minister. Once there is a concept that we're living with the virus, border closures, if we take Mark McGowan at his words, are not going to end. Mm. It's a, it's a concern, isn't it? Because you wonder where does this all go other than rolling uncertainty, if that ends up being the case, because I can't see a scenario other than Australia getting to, at best, 70%, I mean, I think 80% is pushing it, uh, of the eligible population vaccinated. Uh, and, of course, that's the eligible population that leaves a large cohort, potentially, of younger Australians, millions of them, unvaccinated, depending on what TGA approval looks like for anyone under 16, which is not in place at the moment. Uh, and if we get to those sort of benchmarks and it doesn't get any better than that, you still have virus spread. Uh, it might be less likely to be spread and less dangerous for the vaccinated, but there are still large chunks of unvaccinated population and there are still large chunks of vulnerable population who might still be very vulnerable even though they're vaccinated because they were more vulnerable with pre-existing conditions to begin with. And then if everyone writ large is going to then have trouble with travel, uh, snap lockdowns, the uncertainty that it causes, not just for things like holiday travel, that's the luxury, but business travel, uh, business dealings, the ability to work as an interstate traveller, for example, uh, the ability to see family and friends, even if it's not a holiday, but if it's a, uh, an R&R that, that is about maintaining those links, all of these are problematic. And it then also adds to productivity sapping consequences too, Hugh, because you have scenarios of quarantine periods and ongoing testing and all the rest of it, uh, that can all have its own impact. And then there's the mental health impact of all of that as well. So it's a bleak future uh, for the next little while uh, until we get to the point where hopefully, fingers crossed, in the years ahead, uh, the virus either fades altogether like the Spanish flu uh, or it recedes to the point of being no different to the flu. Mm. 
And you mentioned business and holiday travel. And, and I think the one that will really build over time is people unable to get to elderly relatives to help them in their last uh, months uh, mm. of their lives, not get to funerals, not manage uh, weddings. Uh, those are the things which people will start, I think, over time to resist more, not less. And it'll start to become more of a political issue as that goes along. Um, let's take a quick break. Back with more in just a second. Welcome back. You're listening to episode 100, The Big Ton, of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the hack, Hugh Rimmington, and the Professor PVO, Peter Van Onselen, is with us as always. Now, for our 100th episode, we did ask you to um, send in some questions, and, and, and we got a variety of them. So I'm going to throw some to you, uh, Peter, if you like. Sure. Um, and there's a question from Andy F. What is the most critical issue facing Australia today? Over to you, Professor Van Onselen. The most critical issue facing Australia? That's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, I mean, the, the first temptation is just to instantly say, well, it's obviously managing COVID uh, and the vaccine rollout that goes with it and the chance to get life back to normal. But I guess away from that, I, I think that, and I know I'm hedging here because I'm picking more than one, but away from that, I, I would cite, what I regard as two critical issues for Australia. And I cite two because they're very different. I mean, one is absolutely climate change, uh, which is why I get so frustrated at climate change skeptics not understanding the important arbitrage of preparing for it, even if you're a little bit skeptical about what one nation can do or indeed what, what its likely impact will be. So getting action and adaptation for almost inevitable climate change is one, I think, because uh, that has so many consequences uh, for all of us. And Australia, more than almost any other country, is impacted by the perils of climate change uh, in a way that other countries don't have to face it nearly as much as we do because of our natural climate and our geographical positioning. But the other one that I think is actually a really big challenge which isn't discussed enough at the higher echelons of government is the increasing divide between expectations on government and expectations on spending, if you like. That is to say, I think that we continue to have these debates about smaller government and tax to GDP and an expectation of getting the budget back to surplus somehow without acknowledging that there are more strains on the budget going forward than ever before. And unless we can wrap our heads around what seems to be the reality in my mind that we expect more of government so ipso facto we need to accept higher taxes and then the debate can be what we make them look like until we even get over that hurdle we're going to have this ongoing disconnect between uh, between government spending and expectations on government and that to me is a uh, a complex debate that requires all sorts of reactions and understanding about inequality, a, a response to how you uh, divvy up the tax system and, and do actual tax reform. But I just don't think that there's any appetite for it whatsoever. And I don't think, Hugh, there was an appetite for it pre-COVID, much less post-COVID when everyone's got a level of fatigue that they didn't have before. Yeah, I'd say the critical issue, I reckon, climate change, I think uh, the strategic realities of China, I think, are going to be mm. big issues facing us over the next little while. And the other one, I think, does go to intergenerational fairness. Um, I think that Australia is on track to become a more class-divided society, and it'll be divided on this line. 
if you are the beneficiary as the son or daughter of someone who achieved property in the last 20 or 30 years, you can get that, you'll inherit that in time into property yourself and your ways in life will be somewhat secure. If you have come from a family where your parents were not able to get onto the property ladder, your own prospects of getting on that property ladder are are harder and harder and without the security of property owning your own home you'll always be more to the margins uh, of society and i think that is an issue which will play out over the next generation or so and and cause something which i don't think australians like to see or imagine for themselves and that is a, a, a markedly less equal society so is my offering. Um, a question from Sarah from Brisbane. Who is a younger politician or MP that you think could be a strong leader one day? Who has the most promise? Peter? Yeah, well, on the Labor side, uh, and in, in some ways they're both already very senior, but they are young, uh, I would say that both Claire O'Neill out of Victoria, out of Melbourne, and Jim Chalmers out of Queensland, uh, out of Brisbane, I think that they're the two next generation Labor MPs who uh, could and probably will, in at least one of the two cases, uh, become leader at some point in time, perhaps sooner rather than later. In Jim Chalmers' case, he's already shadow treasurer. Um, but I would watch Claire O'Neill as well. I think she's very smart uh, and very capable uh, out of Victoria. I think she was a McKinsey's consultant, a lawyer as well. But she's got a, an interesting take as a Labor politician. On the Liberal side, you know what? It's actually very hard on the Liberal side to identify who that next generation leader in the Liberal Party is. I mean, there are there are names that you can throw around, but I don't see a younger next generation entry into the parliament for the Liberal Party who is a standout uh, as as someone coming through. I, you know, I mean, you look at someone like a Tim Wilson, I think he'll end up on the front bench. Um, but I'm talking about, you know, that sort of, equivalent of a Howard-esque figure, uh, but looking at them in their 30s or early 40s, I, I don't see it. Well, the current leadership is actually still quite young. It is just a factor that the, the Morrisons and the Frydenbergs, even the Duttons, are relatively young in their in their political lives. They're not like old timber that's just uh, mm, got these youngsters coming through. Um, prediction jokes aside, asks Richard from Mildura, does Albo have a hope at the next election? Oh, he's certainly got a hope. I just think that he's the underdog. Uh, Labor has effectively got 69 seats with the redistribution in Victoria. Uh, that means that they need eight to form majority government. You now need 77 since Parliament was enlarged with the House of Reps now 151 seats. So they need to find eight seats that they can win without losing any. Now, that's not an unachievable task, particularly when you take it on a government that's trying to win a fourth term. We forget that this is a government trying to win a fourth term um, because Scott Morrison is only essentially in his first full term. Uh, but that is a hard thing to do. But certainly Alba remains the underdog. You know, um, governments aren't losing elections uh, in the wake of the pandemic. So notwithstanding rollout problems and all the rest of it, uh, he's still in the box seat. And particularly, Hugh, because he gets to choose the timing of the election. Uh, and I think that's a really big advantage. If, if he didn't get to choose the timing of the election and it was about to roll on top of him, uh, he might have a problem with, with some of the vaccine rollout problems. But he can pick and choose exactly when he calls it. So he'll try to give himself a long runway uh, to have a good news story before he does. Mm. What do you think you might be talking about in episode 200? Um, <laughs> 
That's from Dave from Wadalba. Well, now, we're up to 100. It took us just over a couple of years. So I guess we're talking then about, uh, you know, the end of 2023. Um, we'll be halfway through the next term of government. We'll probably doubtless be talking a little bit about COVID and its implications. We could be talking about yeah. uh, China, um, I'm sure, on, on one level or another. Uh, what do you reckon? Yeah, and we might be talking about um, new Prime Minister Josh Frydenberg after an orderly handover from Scott Morrison, uh, who decided to be the first Prime Minister since Robert Menzies to walk away at a time of his own choosing. Uh, who knows? Uh, maybe Tanya Plibersek uh, will be ahead in the opinion polls as Labor opposition leader, or maybe we'll be talking about a first-term Labor Prime Minister uh, who nobody thought would ever get there in years gone by, Anthony Albanese. Uh, who knows? Uh, there are all of those possibilities as well. I tell you one thing we won't be talking about. We won't be talking about a countdown to a budget uh, that's back in black. Nope, that's for sure. We might be talking about uh, the Taliban walking through the streets of uh, of Kabul as its yep. own you know, home country. That's something we've got to uh, contemplate as, uh, as the withdrawal there goes on. So... Um, that's we'll be speculating about uh, the next U.S. election, uh, presidential election. Uh, yep. Highly unlikely that Joe Biden will run at it. Uh, he may have even already announced by then, uh, as as far as timing goes, that he is out because four-year terms, two years from now, they're already, what are they, you know, getting on to a year into this term um, or at least halfway into it, halfway into the year, I mean. So by then, um, you know, Kamala Harris may well be on the move, will have a bit of a better handle on what the Republicans are or aren't doing? My prediction, Camilla Harris will never become president of the United States. Um, there you go. Because she loses an election or because she never runs? Well, uh, no, I just don't think, having seen a lot of her speeches over there mm. and looking at the rest of it, I just don't think she's got that uh, cut through. Um, she, When she ran for the nomination against Biden. There were a lot of hopes to her, but she was actually spat out of the system quite early. She didn't generate a lot of support. Then she was kind of retrieved out of the ashes to go there as a running mate to Biden for a whole bunch of purposes, including that she was a woman of color. Um, and, uh, you know, she sort of was a, was a, a, you know, a good intergenerational match with Biden, all that kind of stuff. Those calculations were in play, but when she was trying to run for it, she, she's just not as impressive. Uh, her CV's impressive enough, but her actual performance is less so. So there's this kind of expectation she'll sort of step into the job that, that she's she's got there. She's got. Do you assume that she'll become the Democratic nominee though, and then lose the election, or do you think she might even fall short of that? I think if I my here's my prediction: Biden will run for another go. Oh, there you go. And I think one of the reasons for that is, presuming he's he's still in in good enough health, is that it's such a mess for the Democrats to find someone to replace him. Uh, that the the grandees of the parties will say, let's try and prop this bugger up because um, because we don't want to open up the whole can of worms of trying to find a replacement. It won't be Harris. Who might it be? Might it be one of the new young Turks from the far left of the party, uh, which then makes him less electable, opens the door again to a Trump or Trump candidate to come in from the other side. They won't want that. They'll try to prop up Biden. Well, push him out there. well let, let me jump in because I think if you're correct in your prediction that Joe Biden runs again, if he wins, I think that takes us a long way towards Harris becoming president, even if she never becomes an elected president. Because I could imagine in a second Biden term, he'd be entering it at the age of 82, 
years old, roughly, um, I could imagine him retiring halfway into it and therefore she becomes president. The issue then becomes how does she go in that remaining two years um, before perhaps then having a crack herself to be re-elected? I think, I think that's quite possible and we could wind up with the first uh, woman president of the United States by, by kind of a default and doubtless that would be... Um, uh, a ventilated subject during the uh, during that election <laughs> campaign, but uh, here we are, sort of projecting miles into the future. Uh, let me just end on a, a question which has a degree of silliness in it, um, but it, it it it's from Jim from Lane Cove. I know this isn't a conspiracy theory podcast. We try to make it so. Um, we try to make it not so, I should say. But what do you think about the rumour that Harold Holt orchestrated the construction of those islands in the South China Sea? I think it's a fantastic rumour. I'm going with it. What do you think? <laughs> I, I have to plead complete ignorance and take the fifth on that one. Um, well, Harold Holt would be, I think he'd, he'd have to be a hundred and, what was he, about 60 when he disappeared in 1967. He'd have to be well, roughly 110 um so good luck to him if he is uh you know pulling the strings there behind presumably, presumably this is just th- 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 that's not even a conspiracy theory rumor sure of course not no no it's, it's a bit <laughs> okay. of fun but but let's talk about conspiracy theories and let me segue smoothly because uh i've noticed that there are increasing number that are generated around uh, the person of our good prime minister um scott morrison and when he disappeared there for a few days after his return from cornwall and the g7 and then he was in uh quarantine in the lodge and then he wasn't seen much for a few days um there were suggestions that he had got covid so that had gone around that the government wasn't revealing that he had he had tested positive and he was hold up because he was crook despite being vaccinated um when he popped out i think it was a camera angle thing people said ah now we know why he's been hiding he's been going through a hair growth program hair plugs or something because (laughs) he appeared to have more hair than in previous photographs i suspect it had grown just a little bit longer um uh but anyway the conspiracy theories grow eternal in the political world and uh, the notion that he'd, he'd had hair plugs, which I think the side angle might suggest that he hasn't, um, is, is one of the many that get out there. Well, just a very quick comment on that. But in, in our book that Wayne Arrington and I put out, How Good Is Scott Morrison? With a question mark, importantly, uh, we note in there that one of the security guards told us, uh, one of the security guards who stands guard on the Prime Minister's office and the Ministerial Wing told us that Scott Morrison and Ben Morton uh, his parliamentary secretary look very similar uh, when they're wearing masks uh, because they've got similar build, etc. Uh, and the smart aleck line that the security guard said, which we included in the book, was that uh, Scott. The, the difference is is that Ben Morton seems to be losing his hair about as quickly as Scott Morrison is growing his. <laughs> oh, maybe there's something to it. Um... <laughs> Or maybe he's just a conspiracy theorist, the security guy. Absolutely. Conspiracy theories in every office. PVO, thanks for coming with us all the way to 100. Thanks for uh, listening. If you're a podcast regular, if you're new to it, join us. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you again in a week. See you then. listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.